0: Don't be afraid to like kill off your systems in the spirit of AI coming down the pipe and needing to rebuild these things. The way I see it is you really need to practice this sort of concept of like data Pilates or Data Yoga. Come up with a really strong core, but make sure it's really flexible. And it's able to do a lot of things.
1: Hello and welcome to Good Data Better Marketing, the ultimate guide to driving customer engagement. Today's episode features an interview with Krish Salem. Marketing
2: technology and operations lead at Nextdoor. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. Looking for clean, reliable data that you can trust? Segment collects, cleans, and allows you to activate your data in real time across hundreds of applications and channels. Learn about how Segment can help you personalize customer experiences by visiting segment.com.
1: Building an authentic presence in your local market is tough. You want to help advertisers deliver relevant messages to customers, but without the corporate rhetoric. Nextdoor's Krish Salem has figured out how national brands can engage with local communities. They're working with big box retailers and mom and pop shops alike to create a trusted and high impact customer experience at the neighborhood level. In this episode, Krish and I discuss localization at scale, the concept of data Pilates, and killing off your systems. Welcome to Good Data, Better Marketing, the podcast where we speak with influential marketers and digital innovators and learn their tricks of the trade. They help us understand exactly what good data is and share stories about all of the different digital-first customer experiences that they're creating. I'm Kaylee Raymond and I lead enterprise marketing here at Twilio Segment. I'm your host and with me today for a very special live session for CDP Live. We have Chris Salem, Marketing, Technology, and Operations Lead at Nextdoor. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here.
0: Thanks, Kaylee. I really appreciate you providing us with this opportunity. It's an honor to be on the show, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation.
1: Me too. Usually the way that I like to kind of kick these off is just to get to know you and your career journey a little bit more deeply I know that prior to Nextdoor, you have a ton of experience across a lot of different verticals, B2B, education, retail, healthcare, entertainment, about 20 years of experience. And you have a lot of expertise in mobile, paid search, social, email, display, programmatic, the list goes on. So... Definitely want to make sure we're touching on the well-rounded experience that you're bringing from agency, in-house, product, marketing, and all of those ways that those are actually impacting the way that you think about driving customer engagement. But before we dive into some of those tactics and strategies, what was your first job, Krish?
0: Yeah, so my my first real job uh, was at a company called Digitas as an agency. It was up in Boston, and the account I got put on was the AT&T account. And this was early 2000, and one of the projects that we were working on was actually helping AT&T create an online customer service portal. And So it was the first of its kind, and we were also helping them create the first of their portfolio of banner ads for online advertising. So it was really a lot of digital transformation for them, but the very, very early stages of that. So that really got me into kind of learning about UX, UI design, web design, and overall content management systems and starting to actually understand like how data is stored from like an end customer perspective.
1: That's so interesting. My grandfather worked at at and a long, long time ago. Yeah. So whenever I hear somebody worked at at and I always think of shout out, Leo. Awesome, but dot bomb era, like two thousand dawn of the internet. You're kind of working on a lot of kind of bleeding edge stuff, web projects, digital UX, UI. What happened from there in your career, from from Digitas to today? How would you describe that?
0: Yeah, so there's two big things that happened to me. One was I I found myself feeling very unfulfilled dealing with digital. I feel like it wasn't it wasn't tangible enough for me. So I made a decision to leave Digitas, and a few weeks later, 9-11 happened. And that really kind of like destroyed the economy. And so that really kind of set me on a new path. I said, hey, you know, why don't I take this as an opportunity to explore things overseas? So I ended up going out to Singapore and, and was part of a biotech startup out there.
1: That's incredibly cool. So you were working in Boston, then you go over into biotech, different industry. How'd you end up in tech?
0: I started to realize going into biotech, you needed to have a medical degree and you needed that sort of cachet to be in that industry to really progress. Then I started to realize like, I was okay at tech. I was the guy who read the manual, so I could explain it pretty well to other people as well. So I came back and, and started to get back into tech. I actually went to a company in Bangkok. It was a large conglomerate out there. They were building the first sort of online procurement system to kind of help eradicate a lot of the bribery that was happening in their systems. You quickly find out that bribery is a very efficient system out there. Uh, <laughs> so online procurement was kind of not a thing that worked back in in early two thousands.
1: That's so, funny. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So you're you're kind of going around Asia. You have a lot of different experiences, and I I think you're back in the states now. So walk me through like coming from from there to here.
0: Yeah. So I, I decided to get a, a master's degree, and that kind of put me on a slightly different path, and and really felt like. I wanted to get back into the internet side of things, so I came out to San Francisco. Started off at a online advertising network. It was Tribal Fusion back then, or Exponential. We were part of the performance group and really got into kind of performance driven media, so running search and understanding how CPAs worked, CPLs worked, and really building a book of business that way. So that got me into online media. Developed a you know a good reputation there, but then I wanted to get deeper into kind of programmatic. So joined a, a very strong agency in programmatic and was really the main advocate for how mobile programmatic should be used in a brand strategy. When I started advocating for mobile, it started to kind of push my boundaries in terms of like how I should teach people about what the differences are, where the data comes from, how the signals are used, and really what the customer experience should be. So that really kind of expanded my career into getting into customer experience management.
1: Wow, that's so cool. And I'm sure you're thinking about like, we're getting all of this information from a mobile channel. We you know, also have kind of web browsers. Now, how do we merge that data and make sure that all those things are kind of like firing off? So you're like probably yeah. very early CDP, DMP, DSP, like all of the different ways to collect and yeah. store and share out data.
0: Yeah, pretty much every acronym I've come across in in my career.
1: (laughs) So you're at Nextdoor, you're the marketing operations lead for them. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Nextdoor for those who aren't familiar? I'm sure we have a couple of neighbors on the call today, but want to make sure that folks are up to speed.
0: Yeah, so we're going to start off with a couple of neighbors on the call today. And hopefully by the end of the call, everyone's a neighbor. But so Nextdoor is a, a platform where... Neighbors really come to sort of become part of a community and and really feel a sense of belonging in that community. There's a sense of engagement with other people, your neighbors and businesses in your area, local agencies that could be like a police department, fire department, things like that. But you're really coming there for trusted information from people around you that are like you. You're also coming there for a sense of safety in a lot of cases. So if there was a natural disaster, it becomes a huge source of information of like where to get resources. Um, so it's a it's a huge platform for utility. Currently, we're in one in three households in the U.S. We have wow. over 70 million neighbors globally. We're in 11 countries. We have over 60 million recommendations of different businesses on the platform as well. So it's a really engaged platform overall.
1: That's unbelievable. I, I didn't realize the scale of Nextor. One in three households is just staggering in in the actual size of that. And I appreciate that overview. So that's kind of like the the B to C side. And obviously you work with a network of advertisers as well. So you're kind of like a little bit of a marketplace, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, there's, definitely two sides to next door. The one is the B2C side where the neighbors really come to kind of share information about what's going on in their neighborhood. It's accessible to everyone and our total addressable market is pretty much everyone because everyone's in a neighborhood of some sort or some sort of community. On the other side of the house is is really kind of a, a B2B opportunity. So, We have a platform for anything from an SMB to a mid-market company to an enterprise brand to advertise on our platform. And this is really about delivering localization at scale so they can really get into your neighborhood, have that authentic presence, and really interact with neighbors on a local level, regardless of what type of brand it is. And then we also have the ability for those businesses to interact with their community and sort of create posts about what's going on with their business, if they're hosting an event or something like that, they can sort of create content themselves as well. So it's a really good two-sided platform for both neighbors and businesses.
1: That's really interesting and especially really built on trust. Like the foundation, I think, of Nextdoor is trust. And so that's a nice little virtuous circle I'm sure that a lot of advertisers are are feeling because of that. We're going to dig into that later. I want to learn from you based off of a lot of the experiences that you've had right at the tip of the spear of a lot of technologies as they've kind of been coming out. You've seen a lot of trends come, you've seen a lot of trends go, and I just want to understand what you're seeing today. What are some of those trends related to customer engagement in in the tech space that you're seeing and following?
0: Yeah, so this is the part where we turn it into a, a murder mystery podcast. <laughs> <Let's> and <go. laughs> yeah, so your your customer engagement strategy, I think I'm gonna like prophesize here, is gonna be murdered, and it, it's gonna be murdered in a way that you can see it coming, but you're still not expecting it. So I think you know one of the big trends I'm really seeing in the industry right now is the concept of AI and how that's influencing customer engagement. The cool thing about AI is that there's massive interest in it and there's massive applications for it across the entire customer journey. So from that top of funnel side of things and and sort of making the personalization stronger, creating email copy very quickly, creating imagery for your emails or paid units. But then also in the sales platform or sales tech stack, we're seeing AI kind of help sales reps summarize calls or update their contacts or records or opportunities in Salesforce. Then on the customer service side of things, I think that's a huge area for AI to influence what happens next. And if a person's in a support call scenario, should they stop receiving marketing and really focus on reestablishing that relationship before they get back into like a marketing type flow or a cross-sell opportunity? It's really like a fundamental change in terms of like how people are gonna expect to interact with brands, which I think is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're we're kind of at the the dawn of this new era where folks have a lot of curiosity. They have a lot of fear. We're not quite sure exactly the use cases. To your point, there's different use cases throughout the lifecycle of a customer and where businesses might be able to insert it. There's a study that we just did, our state of personalization report, and there's a couple of stats related to AI, which I think are really relevant and kind of highlight a little bit of that discrepancy with this current kind of moment that we're in. And the findings show that 90% of the businesses that we're talking to are using AI driven personalization to drive growth. And so, really big investments happening. But 36% of business leaders are citing security and compliance as things that are obstacles to this right now. And when we talk to the consumer side, Only 41% of them are comfortable with AI being used to personalize their experiences. So there's just like interesting gap between what we think is really cool, what businesses are willing to do and to test on their consumers, but then what we as consumers are comfortable with being used on us. So yeah, very, very interesting time we're in.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's it's a really interesting time, but it feels very similar to the early 2000s again. Where if you went to a bunch of people and asked them, do you feel comfortable buying something online and using your credit card online? A whole bunch of people that were like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. But today it's like, yeah, why wouldn't I do it? Right. And and sometimes I feel a little bit more unsafe using my credit card at a store if they have a a credit card skimmer or things like this. Right. So I I do think there's going to just be a natural adjustment. I do think one of the big benefits of AI in personalization and the customer experience is that it's understandable by a very large group of people. And I think the hype behind AI is a very strong bandwagon to jump on. And the reason why I say this is like if you compare it to crypto just 2 years ago.
1: I love this comparison. Let's go. Let's infuriate some folks in Miami right now.
0: <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> crypto I mean it's a, it's a valid concept, right? But it was really really hard to explain to your parents. Yes. And even today I'd say the vast majority of people can't explain how crypto works or what it does. But if I said, hey, would you like to chat to this system? And it gives you an answer real quick. Yeah, I get it. Do I need to know how it works? No, not really. But it gives me a valuable answer. So it's immediately accessible by a much, much larger group of people.
1: It definitely makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I also think that like. Sam Altman and OpenAI over the past few months truly just changed the entire dynamic and game. And now it really does feel as though there's a race to have all of these different AI applications in your business. And what I think is interesting too is this like pause that people are suggesting, yeah. like Elon and Steve Wozniak and what a thousand other people are signing this document saying that we should have a six month pause which I understand because of the like I lens that we think we probably do need to th- start thinking about applying to AI and kind of the ethics behind it and what are the guardrails. So a lot of questions still need to kind of be explored there. But yeah, we'll see where it goes.
0: So yeah, I mean, th- that particular letter, I think everyone who signed it realized that And this is a personal view here, but they realize like the cat's already out of the bag. There's no way you're stopping this machine from going forward, right? I do think it's an interesting letter to put out because I think the guys who are inventing this stuff and and creating this stuff realize the potential. And I think they're giving the governments an opportunity to say, hey, look, you probably need to put some regulation in place, otherwise this is going to get out of hand very quickly. The unfortunate part is that governments are very slow to react or to even understand what's going on. They're still questioning how like a a, a tweet works or, or a, po- you know, a TikTok <laughs> video works, right? Oh,
1: it's and this sad. is after
0: well over a decade of these things being out in the space. So it'll be interesting to see how the regulation evolves. And I think the concept of ethics in the AI is is going to be a huge thing. And it'll ultimately be a new practice in like companies like PwC or Accenture for AI compliance, and they'll make a ton of money off of just auditing your AI stack. It's gonna be wow. a lot of new revenue. I didn't
1: here. even think about how the big four are gonna come in and make this a massive part of their business, but you're so right. That yeah. is so spot on. Okay, so AI, definitely this massive kind of movement that we're in right now, a lot of momentum kind of behind that trend. Any other things that you're spotting that you're looking at thinking about?
0: There are a few things that I'm thinking about. One of them is how do you expand the customer experience across different channels? So I think, you know, a lot of the lead forms that we come across in our day-to-day lives, the, they ask for a phone and email. The fact is, like, most people don't want to talk to you and they don't want to have like a human conversation. They can say they're resistant to talking to the bot and the AI system all they want, but they will do everything possible to avoid having a human conversation at the same time. Yep. So that, that's one area. I think concepts like mobile text-based support are going to be interesting and in seeing how that evolves. It's much quicker, lower friction, and it, it's a modality that I think a lot of people understand. The other thing is, is really just kind of understanding the concept of measurement and attribution. So understanding how multi-touch attribution is going to evolve over time and understanding where that's going to play within the customer journey and if the data signals for that are going to be sufficient or if it's just going to continue to be a guessing game.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, even in the past like decade or so that I've been in marketing, the like, first touch, last touch, multi-touch, it's different everywhere you go in terms of how exactly they start to think about and calculating this. But... The number of touches before you're actually converting people are only increasing over time as the channels have a proliferation of channels. So you're right. It's going to be a really kind of tough thing to solve. Are there any things that you're thinking about related to that right now? Like what's your hot take?
0: So for me, the the thing I want to keep an eye on is really how those AI-based conversations become part of your funnel and your journey. I think it's going to be a massive step in that consideration layer where instead of asking a friend or industry colleague of like, hey, what do you think about this platform? You're going to ask the AI tool and they're going to supersede your research on you know, a particular blog or a company website or going to YouTube to find a demo of the product. It's going to give you the quick and dirty summary. And I think that needs to be taken into account in terms of like how you measure this new customer journey. It's a channel you can't necessarily control or influence, but you know it's going to be present.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm learning a lot. I love this. This is so cool. And I think that a couple of the trends that you were talking about earlier as well, the number of channels, where do you want to meet people? Is it a mobile text? It's channel of choice and making sure that you are understanding somebody, that you're personalizing that experience specifically to that human, which is really just this, I think, this mega trend that we've been seeing over the past five years of digital personalization omni channel personalization making sure that that experience blends across any different channel that you would be able to touch somebody a couple more interesting stats on from our personalization report that kind of talked about that is that over half, 56% of consumers say that they're going to become repeat customers after these personalized experiences. So if they have that, you know, AI chatbot experience and that is personal to them, you know, then then they say that hopefully they're going to become customers of that business again. And what's interesting is this time the data on the other side backs it up. So for businesses, 80% are saying that consumers actually spend more with them when they're personalizing experiences. And that that more, that number that they're spending is 38% more on average. So that's all to just say that understanding your customer and making sure that you really are figuring out their channels, where they are, how they want to be talked to is going to increase your revenue, ultimately, and build efficiencies in the places that you're finding people and talking to people. There's a lot of changes in consumer behavior.
0: I think that there are a lot of changes in consumer behavior. And I think the metrics are always from like the business perspective. It's like, did it help me drive more revenue? Yep. I think that's some, something that's undervalued is that we don't necessarily look at, like, did this experience of personalization make me feel good as a customer? And ultimately, like one of the things where I think customer experience management needs to to focus on is, did I make that person feel like they were my only customer? And if I did, there's a really high chance that they're just going to keep coming back, and we have a long-term relationship at that point. They don't need to know that I service 10 million people or things like this. They need to feel like they're the only customer. They're getting the attention when they need it. They need to be va- valued. And that's a really hard metric to find.
1: It is. Our CEO, Jeff Lawson, has talked about this a couple of different times, but it seems like with the proliferation of digital channels for a really long time, things became less personal. It felt like you were Mm -hmm. talking to a a robot, but a robot that wasn't actually good. Like the chatbots were really bad for a really long time. And now with tech becoming so much better. The experience is kind of mimicking more of what you actually see out when you're talking to a human on in the world. You expect that back online, but you're craving that kind of in person, individualized, actually talk to me like I am Kaylee and not a woman who lives in Brooklyn. I don't want to be a demographic. I want to be me. So I think that that's spot on. Any other changes in consumer behavior that you've seen in the past couple of years that you're taking note of?
0: I would say people are looking for very quick experiences and low friction type things. One of the areas where I, I'm constantly watching is I, I take a look at my kids and what their expectations are of consumer experiences. So when I show like, my, my nine-year-old kid like regular broadcast TV, he's like, hey, can you just fast forward to the next episode? I'm <laughs> like, no, it doesn't work like that. And then I see them swipe across the TV and there's fingerprints across the lower third of my TV all the time, (laughs) but they think it's an iPad, right? So their choice of interface, their choice of content on demand, things like that, it's it's all setting the pace for where our businesses need to be. It's kind of interesting that the kids are going to be setting the tone of expectations very quickly.
1: That's really interesting. My dad, similarly touches the screen. And whenever screen yeah. he's on, touches the screen because he has an iPad. And so whenever he has a computer now, he's like trying to swipe a <laughs> computer screen. I'm like, it should be like
0: that. <laughs> but it should. Apparently right. he's ahead of his time. <laughs> the main thing about technology is that the experiences that feel natural and intuitive are the ones that are going to stick and, and really drive that expansion of relationships, revenue, whatever it might be. But if you make it kind of clunky, you design the experience based on what the tech can do versus what the customer wants, then that's where you start to lose ground, I think.
1: That's interesting. One thing that I would kind of point to as well is a lot of people are just demanding transparency. You just want to know, to your point of like, you can probably figure it out. If you're looking for something to purchase, you can probably find information online. You don't want to talk to a human. You want to talk to a chatbot or anything else. There's just so much more information available today than there ever has been. Review sites, transparent pricing, YouTube demos, like you name it. There's going to be a way for you to figure out damn near 90 to 100% of what you need by poking around yourself. So that like self-serve, try it yourself. That's something that I actually think today more than ever is with the current economic environment. Really interesting to think about because they don't want to talk to sellers. If I'm purchasing a new software right now, I probably want to try it myself to figure out what use cases I have before actually talking to a seller. So less desire to speak to reps immediately with the lens of this current economic environment. What's different in 2023? How is the economic climate changing some of your tactics and strategies?
0: I think the economic climate is, it's tumultuous. I think it's probably the best word. where people don't know how it's going to pan out. They see things getting more expensive. There's a lot of fear on the horizon in terms of stability of different economic factors, things like that. So I think people are are generally bracing for rougher seas. So from an advertiser perspective, it's no secret that advertisers are kind of holding back or being conservative with their spend approach. So for, I think, a lot of businesses today, the name of the game in the very short term is not necessarily raw new growth acquisition, but it's about fixing the leaky bucket and making sure you're doing everything possible to reduce churn and retain customers and keep them happy. So there's still a ton of value and there's a ton of efficiency in terms of like generating revenue from your existing customers versus always saying, hey, look, I need to get this new customer, new customer, new customer. And you're kind of forgetting about the ones that you already have. So I think having that more balanced approach is, is I think, a huge change that's happening right now.
1: I hear you. The economy is so interesting right now because it's doing well, jobs are growing. But your word bracing, I think, is probably like the perfect way to state it is there's caution. And, and folks are are thinking about ways to dive back into the base. Absolutely. We're seeing that a lot. And we're thinking a lot about conversion, as opposed to filling the top of this funnel. Of course, that's always going to be something that we're doing. But Digging into each of these different handovers and figuring out where you can optimize each of them, I think is what a lot of people are thinking about right now. What are some of the biggest challenges related to customer engagement that you're facing at
0: Nextdoor? It's really easy to get excited about different technology that's in the market. She start to come up with this like utopian vision of like what the customer experience could be. And I think this is not something that's isolated to next door. It's, I think, an industry-wide issue is like creating that vision and architecture is important. Being able to kind of distribute that across the organization is important. But then you quickly realize, is your organization actually set up to deliver that vision? And do you have the right skills in-house to deliver that vision? So I think that's really going to be like the the biggest challenge over the next few years for a lot of organizations. It's like with the the specter of AI coming down the pipe. A, do we have enough people in the organization to understand it? B, can we get those people? And then can we then restructure how everything is done to then service that? Because I, I think there's a fundamental change coming down the pipe around data and AI. It's like we used to think about building data for and customers and. We thought we needed a ton of it. But I think the change coming is that we're going to need to build data for the AI systems and let them handle the customer experience at that point. So the balance and control is going to start to shift. And I I think the way we deliver that data is also going to be dramatically changed as well.
1: That's interesting. And the way that I think about it too is you need to know what data to collect, but you also need to collect clean data. Or or have a mechanism to be able to kind of clean that data so that you have the ability to feed that out into your AI systems or whatever else to actually be able to make those decisions. We were talking to a partner of ours, Databricks, and they did a study where they were talking about really understanding what engineers are doing, where they're spending their time. And they found that the really hard manual work of cleaning and preparing data was taking them 60% of their time versus Mm -hmm. actually manipulating it and analyzing it, which was taking about 20% of their time. So, I I mean, I don't have to tell you as a segment user, but it just kind of like breaks my heart that all of these engineers are sitting there spending a lot of time doing this really hard manual work of cleaning this data when CDPs act as those powerful filters to make sure that they have that. I guess what I'm curious about is we're talking about AI, we're talking about feeding these systems. I think that we need clean data to be able to do that in the best way to deliver the best experience. How do you get to clean data? What is good data for you?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question here. So like when you talk through this, like the image that comes to my head is like you have kind of the concept of a data warehouse, you have the data lake. But I think in reality, like a lot of companies are dealing with like data cesspools at this point. You know, if you're an analytics engineer, a data engineer, like... You're cautious about going in there because you know there's a lot of stuff and a lot of duplicates and a lot of stuff that's misnamed and things like that. And what I was thinking about last night was a lot of companies don't really have a great way of organizing data. And the I think the example I would give here is that if you walked into any library in the US, they all have books, tons and tons of information, but it's organized in a very standardized way. The Dewey Decimal System made libraries completely accessible. And regardless of which library you go into, you know how to access stuff, right? But there, there isn't that same standard in sort of creating data lakes. And that standard doesn't exist across companies by any means. We have kind of a tendency to be kind of enterprise data hoarders, right? Like you just want to gather as much data as possible. But ultimately, what good data is, is the data that you actually use. And the example I give here is go to the grocery store, you buy some oranges. I, I put a few on the counter cause I know I'm going to eat them that day right after lunch. I put a few in the refrigerator. My partner has a tendency to kind of pack in a lot of stuff in that same drawer in the refrigerator. And I quickly forget that I bought those oranges and they're still good oranges, but I'm not using it. There's no value coming from them. So is that still good? No, not really. It's just, storage at that point.
1: I have the same exact problem, by the way. What you're saying is resonating with me deeply as somebody who probably (laughs) has to throw out like a half a bag of tangerines every other week.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's always the tangerines, right? They just get moldy and green. How did this happen?
1: It's always the tangerines.
0: Yeah. So knowing A, that you have it, B, it's accessible. You've gathered it in an ethical and compliant way and you're able to use it. And when you do use it, it makes that customer feel like you're their only customer. That's what becomes good data at the end of the day.
1: I think what you're talking about a little bit too is something that we actually just released recently here is these golden customer profiles, right? So it's like, it's good, it's clean, it's complete, and it's portable. You can actually use it across all the different systems. So I think like freeing the customer profile and having it be able to move between the systems that you wanted to from your warehouse to your business applications across the enterprise, Like that is how people actually want to use data. And so you should be able to do it that way. What are some of the programs that you're using some of this good data at Nextdoor? Any ones that you want to share?
0: Yeah. So on the B2B side of things, we use a lot of our data to kind of help our customers before they become a customer. And then quickly after they sign up and register an account, they purchase like their first campaign and things like that. We have an amazing lifecycle marketing team that really starts to act more like a concierge for each customer. They say, Hey, look, Kayla, you just signed up. Here are the best next steps of what you should do on your campaign. And that might go out in a form of an email or something else but they really know where each person is in the customer journey and they have time journeys to kind of go out and are triggered based on different actions. So having those real time actions is really important for us. And also having the ability to kind of augment those profiles from our data lake is also really important. So we have a a full view, we can personalize that message but we know when to send it and we know what the next message you should see is as well. So all those together really, I think provide like a pretty powerful customer experience for Nextdoor. And ultimately, like our goal for a online advertising system is is to be the easiest system to buy from for our customers, regardless if you're a mom and pop pizza shop in downtown or you're a large brand.
1: It's all about decreasing that friction. What I think you're talking about is just like behavioral data, leveraging that to be able to create these personalized paths for people and to provide them with education at the right time. That's based off of exactly what they've told you they're doing within your platform so far. So interesting. Anything else that you're working on at Nextdoor?
0: So we're always working on new stuff. I think, you know, from the neighbor side of things, we're we're trying to make sure that the neighbor experience is as valuable as possible. So we're working on ways to actually help people discover new things in their community Or if you're visiting an area, you can also see the content and sort of start to interact with the local recommendations. So we we have kind of this concept of like a treat map, which goes out around like Halloween time. It's a great way to kind of understand like which houses are decorated, which houses are decorated plus have candy. And it helps you kind of just establish that little walking route that you have with your kids during Halloween. So all these things are, are really valuable in terms of like just driving engagement and retention with our customers to make sure that they understand what the new features are and how they can sort of be part of their community and really find that trust and value from that community.
1: That's so interesting. I, I love the idea of a treat map. It's something that I, I definitely want just in my day-to-day life. Like Halloween yeah. aside, day-to-day, if I can follow my treat map, that sounds like a delightful day to me. I used to work at a marketplace. It was a talent marketplace. So it had you know engineers on one side and, and talent acquisition folks on the other. And so to us doing localization right was really important. We had way less communities than you. I think we had had like 12 North American markets and a handful of international markets. But it's so rewarding for those people in your communities if you can do it right. Because when it feels right, it feels like you're in on something that you kind of like know what's going on. But when you get it wrong, it feels like somebody at corporate designed this campaign and you can like just tell, you know? And like that just kind of gives you the ick. Anything that you want to know When you're thinking about localization at scale for
0: Nextdoor. That's exactly what we wanted to kind of touch on was like Nextdoor's real forte is, is the ability to deliver that localization at scale. So we can have a brand like Home Depot advertise on our platform, but deliver very relevant ads to each neighborhood. So they really feel like they're part of the community kind of helping you with projects around your house things like that, versus just that that corporate monster type saying, hey, look, come to Home Depot, everything's on sale, right? It's like, hey, we realize that it might be uh, weeding season in your area, or planting season, and here's a prep guide for storm readiness if there's tornadoes coming through your area and stuff like that. So it really does feel very local, but it's very easy to execute at scale for them. For the mom and pop side of things, I think that the localization for them is at the scale of the neighborhood that they want to be involved in. So their definition of scale is a little bit different, but they still have the same ability to easily deliver that message. So they can say, hey, look, we're supporting the local Little League team. Here's a sale on, you know, where's a coupon for pizza, things like this come in. And it's a great way to just really engage with the owners of those businesses. And you start to build that relationship where that was really valuable, like 50, 60 years ago and something that was lost. And I think that really needs to come back.
1: I love that. And I, I think it kind of ties to that Virtuous little cycle we were talking about earlier is you're building communities based off of trust for your advertisers and your neighbors, and they have the ability to build some inspiration for somebody, have them discover something that they hadn't necessarily discovered before, something interesting, something delicious. And on the advertiser side, they're getting a new customer. Like that's an amazing way to be able to drive value. It's kind of on the acquisition side, right? So people are coming into the new business, you're driving them with advertisements. What about? retention strategies. We talked a little bit about about diving into your base and kind of making sure that this time you're thinking about stickiness. Any programs you would want to highlight on that side of the spectrum? Yeah,
0: so we we have kind of this this concept of faves or recommendations for the businesses. And there's over 60 million recommendations currently for different small businesses across the platform. But I think one of the things that really helps us from a personalization perspective is being able to kind of send a message to each of these businesses saying, hey, look, a lot of your neighbors are already talking about you on the platform. They've already recommended you. This gives them a really strong hook to say, hey, maybe I should be advertising on this platform and really engage with my local community and and not forget about them. So that personalization of sending them an exact say, like, hey, Kaylee's Pizza Shop, you have 15 recommendations in the last 20 days from these neighbors. And by the way, there's 3,000 neighbors in your one mile radius. So helping them understand there's activity, there's engagement, and there's that scale and understanding what you know the size of that scale is becomes a really easy win for them to say, hey, look, I'll, I'll put some advertising budget in there.
1: That's great. Very, very cool. And making sure that again, like you're drawing visibilities to SMBs, like the mom pop across the corner that wouldn't necessarily be able to amplify their message on the scale that you know a large brand might be able to. So it's really cool that you have the ability to kind of bridge the gap from everybody that is the the local tailor to some very large business. I'm wondering if you've ever dug into your data and found something that might have surprised you.
0: We were looking at the data this week and it, some of the things that were really interesting for us is that when we added a layer of personalization to our campaigns, it obviously improved the click through rate. You know, we saw between an 8 and 10% lift in terms of the click through rate. But What we saw, which was really surprising, is that it improved the click-to-conversion ratio by 40%. Whoa. So we saw more people coming in through the front door with the clicks. But once they were in there, they were way more ready to buy, just with that little bit of personalization, if that was imagery, if it was copy or segmentation. So there were massive jumps in terms of that personalization. And that really helps us build a business case internally and say, hey, look, let's get these data signals in. Let's make sure they're, they're clean and accurate to your point from earlier. And then let's make them automated so we can do these campaigns at scale for multiple verticals.
1: Cool. Do you want to give away your secrets? What was personalized by your emails?
0: <laughs> oh, we can't give away all the secrets here. but yeah. <laughs>
1: That's okay. It's okay. It won't let you slip up on that one. But that's really, really interesting. I mean, figuring out how to actually have CTRs go up is one thing. Incredible. increase.
0: You know, like one of the examples I think about that goes through my head quite often is that recently we hired a plumber to put a new water heater in our house. The way I found this plumber was actually going to next door and seeing, you know, what other people were recommending. But then I also found one guy that was actually commenting on other people's plumbing issues. And he was just being part of the community. (laughs) He's like, hey, this is how you should do it. And he was a plumber. So I started engaging with him and then I quickly realized like for him as a small business owner, like it's really difficult to run his business, changing people's water heaters, installing a toilet, and then still run an online advertising campaign on the side from his truck, right? Impossible. So that personalization is really important because it helps them understand, hey, this is a platform that's relevant to me. I can drive more business for my plumbing business and it's super easy. So that quickness is important.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, the speed is very important. I love the idea of just a plumber commenting on everybody's plumbing issues. <laughs> it's just like, he knows it's a lot of things helpful. about the neighborhood, Chris. He knows a lot of things about the
0: neighborhood. Very well, cool. He lives in the neighborhood, which is great. So there's a level of trust, right? The second thing is, he probably saved people hundreds of dollars in diagnosing costs Absolutely. by just being a good neighbor. You know, there's a lot of good people on the platform, which is, it's, it's always, you know, refreshing and assuring to see
1: very cool and huge engagement i mean you said there's what like 60 million engaged user like unbelievable
0: recommendations yeah
1: yeah 60 million recommendations really really interesting We talked about trends with AI at the very beginning. I want to go back to that, but I want to understand what's on the horizon for you in terms of customer engagement, and we'll keep it short, six to 12 months.
0: I think there's a few things around just understanding what the level of messaging should be when people are dealing with like a uncertain economic environment. It's how much do you want to push them to buy versus how much do you want to push them to know that you're there as a resource and you'll be there when they're ready as well. So I think kind of the tone and being respectful of like what's going on in people's personal lives is going to be important. I think AI is is, is going to be a huge change and I think companies are going to have to make a distinct decision around how they want to approach AI. Do they want to embrace it? Do they want to be on the cutting edge? Do they want to wait and see? how things pan out, or do they want to deny a data eating exists or it works? And I think that AI is going to impact your overall data structure as well. So there's like these crazy concepts coming out there, like zero ETL and, and sort of the concept of having one big table where all your data sits and you just let the large language model kind of come in and figure out what's going on. And th- those are conversations I think you start to need to have. And I think you're going to see a pretty drastic change in terms of like how engineering product teams interact with their finance teams for 2024 planning is trying to figure out like, what's the level of investment do we put into AI? And that's going to be a net new conversation that a lot of companies didn't have, you know, last year. So a lot of interesting things happen in the second half of this year.
1: On the investment side of things... The, we already have data to back that up, which I know we were like kind of joking about like the PWCs, of the world kind of filling their pipelines for the next yeah. year or so, but nearly 70% of businesses are already saying that they're investing in AI per our state of personalization report. So the, it's already starting to kind of build right now, but you're right for 2024. I feel like if it's not within your budget items, then I don't know, have you missed the boat? Have you missed the boat?
0: Oh, that's a good one. Have you missed the boat? I think there's a good chance that you're going to have to wait for the second boat to come around, but that may not come around. I do think this is a, a race in a lot of cases. But I think it's a race that a lot of people in the industry have been part of before of like, hey, look, there's this new opportunity. We're going to have to digest it. We're going to have to plan for it. We're going to have to execute against it. So if you have a strong organization, a strong leadership team, I think it makes it a lot easier to do this. Nextdoor has, I think, one of the best CEOs I've ever worked for in my career. The first female CEO I've worked for is a phenomenally different way of approaching management. So I think you're going to start to see that leadership really come into play this year in, in terms of navigating these tough decisions.
1: I love that answer. Good leadership is going to navigate us through. Speaking of that, who do you think is doing it right? in terms of customer engagement? Anybody that you look to for inspiration?
0: I was talking to my partner the other day and she was texting with customer service. I was like, hey, what company is allowing you to text with them instead of emailing back and forth? And she's like, oh, it's this company called Little Spoon. They deliver pre-made meals for toddlers and infants and so forth. So I started digging into their website a little bit and I was like, hey, this is actually pretty well done. There's personalization. They have a nice flow. They're gathering information in different steps. And then you quickly realize the way that they're doing it is from an omni-channel perspective. So they have an online presence, they have their social ads, they have text-based support, they have email, and then they also have direct mail, all sort of being triggered off of engagement from the website. So a really strong set of signals. And then they have a series of chatbots as well. But what I think they're guiding North Star is don't piss off a new mom.
1: You don't want to mess with a new mom.
0: No, they're tired. You know, they got a lot of stuff on their plate. And it's like, do anything possible to not piss them off. Because if you piss them off, they're gone forever. And they will not only be pissed off and gone forever, they will rant to their mother's group on WhatsApp to say, do not use this service. So there's tremendous downside involved with just getting it wrong. So I think a company like Little Spoon does a great job and they're really customer service oriented, but they know that they need to keep you know, the mom's happy. And I think they're very respectful of the mom's time and sort of mental state. And then a given point. I think companies like Spotify always do a great job. I, I think the difference with Spotify is that they make you feel like you're part of their data journey. Like they let you kind of peek under the hood as to like how you're seen in their systems. And that's something that a lot of companies don't do. So, you know, I think there's great studies around like their end of year wrapped series, just knowing what you should be listening to on the weekend based on your weekly habits and things like that. So they really do a very strong job in terms of execution.
1: I've talked about that rap campaign on this show before. And it it is such an amazing way to highlight customer data and to show it back to the user. But in a way that isn't creepy, it's delightful, you know? And like you want it, you want to be able to share it. I also love your Little Spoon example because I think it really just shows that they know their customer. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really what all of this is about, is listening to your customer, knowing your customer, and being able to innovate for your customer. We're going to leave it with this. One last question, Krish. If you had a piece of advice that you would give to somebody who's trying to up-level their customer engagement strategies, what would it be?
0: It's a good one. I think when we were thinking about up-leveling customer engagement strategies, you really want to think a little bit more forward in terms of like who you're building for. I think having more people in the room that are reflective of your customer base is going to make your customer engagement strategy more impactful. So let's say if a company like Little Spoon was started by a bunch of moms who needed to solve a problem but they also knew how to build data architecture and customer experience systems. That system is gonna be purpose-built with the concept of joy and speed and convenience versus a system that was designed by a bunch of guys who had never had kids. And it's gonna be a totally different approach. So I think knowing who your customer is and having those people in the room when you're designing these systems is gonna be super important. And then the second thing is, Don't be afraid to like kill off your systems in the spirit of AI coming down the pipe and needing to rebuild these things. The way I see it is you really need to kind of practice this sort of concept of like data Pilates or data yoga, where it's like, come up with a really strong core, but make sure it's really flexible and it's able to do a lot of things. Love
1: that. (laughs) Taking that, putting it everywhere. I love that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So it's not about like world strongman competition where you have like the most powerful thing around. You want it to be flexible, modular, sustainable. And I think it's going to be a mindset change. And its adaptability is kind of the name of the game that's going to be the next few years.
1: Data Pilates, strong at the core and flexible. I think we need to make t-shirts, Krish. Thank you so much. This was really, really fun. I learned a ton from you today. Thanks so much for being here.
0: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this conversation.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. In today's digital-first economy, being data-driven is no longer aspirational, it's necessary. Segment's leading customer data platform empowers every team with good data. From marketing and product to engineering and analytics, Segment unifies data silos into a single view of the customer. It allows teams to make data-driven decisions and personalize customer engagement in real time, all with one single platform to collect and manage your data. Curious to find out why over 20,000 businesses trust Segment to be their data foundation? You can learn more by visiting Segment.com.